welcome to our continuing educational webinar series. I'm Katherine Short, Marketing Manager for FIRST Healthcare Compliance, a division of Panacea Healthcare Solutions. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Rachel V. Rose, JD, MBA, Principal with Rachel V. Rose, Attorney at Law, PLLC, Houston, Texas, with us today. Ms. Rose has a unique background, having worked in many different facets of healthcare, securities, cybersecurity, as well as international law and business together throughout her career. Her practice focuses on a variety of cybersecurity, healthcare and securities law issues related to industry compliance and transactional work, as well as representing plaintiffs in Dodd-Frank False Claims Act whistleblower claims. In addition to being extensively published and a sought-after presenter and quoted expert, Ms. Rose holds a MBA with minors in healthcare and entrepreneurship from Vanderbilt and a law degree from Stetson University College of Law, where she graduated with various honors, including the National Scribes Award and the William F. Blues Pro Bono Service Award. Ms. Rose is licensed in Texas and is admitted to practice before all state courts, as well as the United States Supreme Court, the District Court for District of Columbia, and for all four federal court districts in the state of Texas. She is a fellow of the Federal Bar Association and currently is the chair of this association's Government Relations Committee, a board member of the Federal Bar Association's Ketam section and co-editor of the American Health Lawyers Association's Enterprise Risk Management Handbook for Healthcare Entities, second edition, as well as the co-author of the books, The ABCs of ACOs and What Are International HIPAA Considerations. She has been named consecutively by the Texas Bar College and the National Women Trial Lawyers Association's Top 25 and Houstonia Magazine's Top Lawyers for Healthcare. In 2019, she also was named a top presenter for First Healthcare Compliance. Ms. Rose is also an affiliated member with the Baylor College of Medicine's Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy, where she teaches bioethics. CRVrose.com for additional information. Before we begin, I would like to mention at First Healthcare Compliance, we strive to serve as a trusted resource for compliance professionals and we celebrate their hard work and dedication with our Compliance Super Ninja recognition. Today, we're turning our spotlight on to Michelle Credit, Practice Manager at Claremont Internist Associates. Michelle says, my favorite thing about working at Claremont Internists is the staff. They are enjoyable to work with. Congratulations, Michelle. Our team is honored to have the privilege of working with you. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Please feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We'll address questions at the conclusion. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. There's no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the broadcast. See their website for details. So Rachel, a very, very warm welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Catherine, it's always my pleasure, especially uh, during this time of the year as we 
head into some of the pressing issues. As we all know, cybersecurity is on the minds of board members and healthcare executive and healthcare industry participants alike. So again, it's my pleasure to always present for first healthcare compliance and to have these conversations with you. Well, thank you. Okay, so as you indicated today, I'm going to speak on the criminal side of HIPAA and cybersecurity. And no presentation is complete without a disclaimer. And this area of the law and regulations in particular is very dynamic. So it's important to remember that the information presented is current and the information presented is not meant to constitute legal advice. So if you are a non-attorney, you need to consult an attorney. And also participants are encouraged to check the relevant government websites and case law for the most recent information. So today I'm going to begin with what goes on in a criminal's head and then delve into some noteworthy news, cybersecurity terms and trends, HIPAA and the High Tech Act, criminal liability for HIPAA violations. From there, I'll delve into the role that the False Claims Act and DOJ enforcement actions play with HIPAA liability, both on the civil side and the criminal side. And then I'll end with risk mitigation tips and techniques, which are very relevant to any compliance department, as well as considering what the U.S. government looks at in terms of cooperation credit and some parts of the DOJ manual, both on the civil side and the criminal side, which can really help organizations mitigate the amount of a fine or potential jail time as well, if it is in fact a criminal matter. And with that, I came across this cartoon and I absolutely love it. As most people have been to a Starbucks, the customers here say, I always encrypt my name in public places just to be safe. Triple, venti, half, sweet, non-fat, caramel, macchiato for a stream of numbers and letters. Uh, it's funny, but there are also a couple of takeaways from this cartoon. First, whenever one thinks about cybersecurity from a prevention standpoint, it's always important to remember that someone can always be looking over your shoulder. Now, this is referred to as social engineering, and criminals of all types engage in a multitude of different methods of information gathering. And if you think about if you're a regular at Starbucks or another coffee shop of your choice, sometimes you see the same people there all the time. And people who are there may be as innocuous as you are just going about your day, but other people may have another ulterior motive. And that is to a, what's known as shoulder surf, B, collect information. Whenever you give your name at Starbucks, they already know your first name, if it's your name that you use or your last name, if that's your name potentially. In terms of your 
smartphones being open or using a tablet or a laptop, make sure that you have a privacy screen because people, again, have uh, peering eyes, so to speak. And I know this happens a lot on airplanes as well and other public transportation venues. You need to make sure that your screen is on your phone and or your tablet or your laptop because it really can prevent someone from gathering information either about the item that you have pulled up, whether it's an email or a document or trade secrets, for example. One of the reasons they might be looking over your shoulder is to get the URL. It's also a so that they can obtain information about specific vernacular that you may use when addressing certain people. And so that is how they begin. Another issue is using unsecure Wi-Fi, whether you are in a hotel, a coffee shop, a restaurant, a supermarket, et cetera, or even in an airport. Make sure that you do use a hotspot, whether it is the one on your phone or if you have a separate one like I do. It's because the open Wi-Fi is a conduit and really is another form of a major vulnerability that a cyber criminal can exploit. The typical type of item that they use from a technical standpoint is called a pineapple, and that enables them, the cyber criminal, to track the open Wi-Fi and then find an entryway into your email or other applications that you may have open. One thing I want to hone in on related to not only open Wi-Fi and the pineapple is I do a lot of cybersecurity audits and a lot of entities say, oh, we use a VPN. Well, that's great. But by the same token, how do you get onto your VPN? Some people have what I call the you've got mail method, right? And it's actually the most secure form. It's the cable that goes into one's workstation. However, whenever we're traveling and so forth, let's face it, most people don't have the you've got mail option. So your alternative is a secure Wi-Fi. Now, VPNs can be secure, but you need to make sure that they're encrypted endpoint to endpoint and that the patches that we do on our computers and emails and everything else are also done on the VPN. But again, how do you get into your VPN? There's that period of time where you have to connect. And that's why having open Wi-Fi still is problematic, even if you use a VPN. So just some takeaways there. So let's take a step back for a second and try and get into a cyber criminal's head. And it's interesting because I present a couple of times a year for a college class and a forensic psychology class in particular about cyber criminals and what happens. So basically approaching cyber crime from the mental vantage point, you always wanna ask the question, why do people do what they do, right? And so the three motivating factors are typically fear, greed, and sex, or 
the other fourth factor is if someone's being forced to do it. But again, that's typically fear. So those are really the three main motivators for criminals. Some of them just think they're above the law or there might be another component to that. But overall, that those are the three. So from a psychological standpoint, cyber criminals may be explained through a variety of theories. And I've just highlighted two here, routine activity theory, which is known as RAT, and social learning theory, or SLT. So RAT makes a connection between the crime and its environment, and specifically stresses the ecological process. So just to put that in the context of the cartoon, a part of that is in fact social engineering. So according to RAT, there are three major factors, the presence of a motivated offender. Secondly, availability of a suitable target. For those of you who are Top Gun fans, a target-rich environment, right, is a coffee shop. And then the lack of a capable guardian. And I'm not talking about a guardian like we typically think of in law or in healthcare, but a guardian can come in a technical form as well as someone who is responsible for keeping your IT environment safe. So social learning theory, and again, this goes to social engineering and what I discussed from the outset, is learning through observations. And most successful cyber criminals leverage known human weaknesses. So if you think about the very fundamental forms of phishing, it's there's an orphanage in some part of the world and they need money, or my grandchild is really sick and needs an organ transplant, whatever it is, right? And so people are drawn to certain needs that other humans have. Now, for those of us who have been trained, we know that we are not going to click on any links and we're going to go to a resource which lists what types of charities are in fact legitimate and go to those websites directly versus clicking on a link. Now, using the understanding of human behavior in cyberspace, psychologists can introduce cultural and behavioral shifts towards higher security on both individual and an organizational level. So this really takes your compliance department and your prevention of cyber attacks to another level. And that is integrating the social engineering component and just having an understanding of why cyber criminals do what they do. So again, here are the basic motivators, fear, greed, and sex. Now let's move on to some noteworthy news. And there has been a lot. I'm putting up the tenant healthcare cyber attack for three main reasons. First, $100 million, even though Tenant is a publicly traded company, is nothing to scoff at. And the estimated $100 million unfavorable impact on the organization's second quarter then in turn impacts stock price. Because it's publicly traded, the organization had a duty to report the disruptive attack in its SEC filings. Now, another part of this 
under bullet point two, which is really important, is that tenant indicated that the cybersecurity incident temporarily disrupted a subset of acute care operations, but the hospitals remained operational and continued to deliver patient care using an established backup process. Now, why is that important? Because whenever you're doing your annual HIPAA risk analysis and reviewing your disaster recovery and your business continuity plans, it's important, especially in the healthcare sector, to look at the composition of your staff. Now, people who've been in healthcare for a long time have familiarity with using paper charts and how to chart paper and then using old school facts and then making sure that there is a different type of communication that occurs between the floor and the pharmacy, for example, or between the operating room and the lab. All of that needs to be done in a drill format so that nurses and other staff and physicians who were trained primarily on an electronic health record can seamlessly transition to what I call old school before the IT department gets the backups up and going and does what they need to do. Now, tenant's attack was um, very significant for a third reason, and that is as of Q2 2022, the company had only recouped $5 million from its cybersecurity insurance. So that is significant. As we know, cybersecurity insurance and the different forms that it may take, ransomware it might be another one, is becoming increasingly difficult to get. Cyber insurers, and rightly so, are asking for verification that an annual audit has been done, that you have identified gaps, that you have, in fact, gone about filling those gaps so that you're in a secure environment. That's why it's important to have your annual HIPAA risk analysis done. Another part of that is depending on the size of the company, when you do your business associate agreement, you want to make sure that you're looking at the indemnification and the limitation on liability. Now, those two provisions are not required. They are separate provisions. They vary from state to state as to how they are enforced. Some states have statutes. Other states have common law or court-derived law that really governs that, if you, weigh, if you may, those provisions in a contract. So that's just something to be aware of. I don't recommend putting the policy limits in any contract because, as many of you know, because you've heard me, I actually do some litigation as well. And the first thing that I would ask defense counsel or that my client is asked is, what's the limit of your policy? And you don't want that to be known up front, but you do want a minimum that both of the entities can meet, whether it's a million. 3 million, 5 million, whatever it is. So that's just something to be aware of too. The IBM reports are always a good resource and the couple of takeaways here, and this is relevant in terms of criminal side of HIPAA and cybersecurity, 
because a breach could potentially be a criminal violation depending on the nature of it. So now the average healthcare breach costs $10.1 million according to IBM Security's annual cost of a data breach report. And the average healthcare breach cost $9.2 million in 2021 and approximately $7.2 million in 2020. So we're seeing an exponential increase just over the past two years alone. Now, Microsoft also has some great reports that come out, and in any given 60-second window, the following malicious activity is happening. First and foremost, password attacks. That's why making sure that you have software that stops the ability to have continued brute force attacks, meaning a cyber criminal or a bot or another technical type of malware or apparatus application is attacking, attacking, attacking. And I've had some clients who sustained over 50,000 brute force attacks, but the cyber criminal finally got through. And so what can be done is to implement a certain software or even what I call flip the switch, making sure that you have the safeguards, even on your Yahoo account or your Google or Amazon or Microsoft accounts, having that in place can make a significant difference. So what happens is that after three times, there's another type of verification process that occurs so that it, it shuts down. Another part is multi-factor authentication, but if you read about multi-factor authentication, there's a lot of different issues that can arise. So IOT-based is the internet of things-based attacks. DDoS attacks are uh, designated denial of service attacks. That's your infrastructure type of ransomware attack. So all of that is really significant. DOS attacks, on the other hand, are the denial of service attacks that really go after a single workstation. Phishing attacks made the list as well. So that's just something to be conscious of as you're considering your enterprise risk management and approaching, as we'll see per the NIST standards, cybersecurity basically from a prevention, detection, and correction vantage point. An emerging trend that can absolutely lead to potential criminal liability is data tracking and the sale of protected health information and that data because the data itself uh, falls under the 18 identifying factors, which then can make up PII, which is a component of protected health information. So protected health information is the past, present, or future diagnosis, treatment, or financial record that connects a patient with a covered entity. And so when we start to think about the various ways that this data tracking is coming into play. Recently, a Midwestern hospital system is treating its use of Google and Facebook web tracking technologies as a data, data breach, notifying 3 million individuals that computing giants 
may have obtained patient information. And this is directly out of an article that uh, Marianne McGee wrote that detailed the pixel tracking software. And absolutely, I've been quoted on this a few times, what is critical is that the IT and then your third-party risk assessor looks at these web tracking technologies and whether or not patient consent has been obtained. Secondly, the Federal Trade Commission also has the ability to enforce data tracking, and it did actually in June of 2021 with the Flow Period Tracking app, and they issued a press release on that as well. And again, it was an app that uh, tracked a menstrual cycle and the company was tracking this without the individual's knowledge or consent, taking it, using it for a different purpose and or selling it downstream. HHS OCR guidance on tracking just came out and this is imperative for anyone in healthcare to read. Again, the key takeaways are focused on the Obtaining the patient's consent, understanding and appreciating the law enforcement exception, making sure that when you're doing your risk analysis that you are delving in and looking at what applications, software applications are being used as part of the technical safeguards which are required under the security rule. And then lastly, getting patient consent if in fact their data is being utilized and sold because there's a marketing provision in HIPAA and then there's a sales provision in HIPAA. And some marketing's okay, but this type is not because it's the actual taking and utilization without the patient's knowledge or consent that does not fit in a an exception such as a public health exception or things of that nature. Lastly, an item that's becoming more and more a focus, not only of cyber criminals, but the American Hospital Association has some great comments and resources on cybersecurity is patient safety, or conversely, patient safety is cybersecurity. And Senator uh, Warner from Virginia actually released a white paper to that effect. So here, a hospital unfortunately was hit by a cyber attack. A woman went in to deliver her baby, had no idea that the hospital system was shut down. As a result, there was a missed communication and the baby was delivered with its umbilical cord around its neck and died nine months later. I recently looked this up and I could not see any resolution of the case, so it appears as though this case is still active, and the takeaway is that it would be the first death linked to a ransomware attack if proven in court. So, if you read the CISA and FBI and Department of Homeland Security bulletins, the cyber criminals are focused on hospitals and other long-term care facilities in particular because of the urgent need to get the patient data up and running again. But again, that's why having those disaster recovery, those offline backups and gold 
images available is absolutely critical to avoiding this type of situation. So what are some key terms and trends in cybersecurity? Well, first and foremost, ransomware as a service, also known as RAS, continues to be on the forefront of law enforcement as well as a key type of service model, so to speak, that is used by cyber criminals. So basically what it does, it works almost like a SaaS or a software as a service subscription and enables affiliates to use already developed ransomware tools to execute ransomware attacks. So here there's a payoff that occurs going back to why cyber criminals do what they do, and that's obviously a greed factor. As a U.S. Department of Health and Human Services report relayed, the top five ransomware actors providing RAS impacting global healthcare sectors are Conti, Avedon, Revel, Mesopinoza, and then other RAS operators. And there've been a few that have come about lately. So that's why it's critical to check the FBI's updates. Typically this leads to the unauthorized use and sale of protected health information, which really it are the two areas of HIPAA violations that can lead to criminal liability. Now, NIST is the National Institute for Standards and Technology. It falls under the U.S. Department of Commerce. It is not new. In fact, it's been around since about 1901. And although initially it was not the focus of cyber or computers because they weren't around, once World War II hit, NIST really became more focused on cyber and not just weights and measures. So NIST sets the standards that are utilized by the government and are also required by a variety of laws, such as the federal acquisition regulations, which vary from federal government agency to federal government agency, and also the FIP publications like NIST, they develop publications not only for the government and government contractors to use, but whenever I do a risk analysis, I always incorporate the NIST and FIP standards because of the issues involved in mitigating risk and, again, looking at what the government may look at, whether it's OCR or whether it is the DOJ in terms of their mitigation, which is typically laid out in their manuals. So I mentioned that prevention, detection, and correction. I just truncate these five steps into those three main categories because oftentimes people can remember three steps instead of five. But the general NIST framework for approaching cybersecurity is to identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. Now, who is under the HIPAA legal umbrella? Well, first, some of you might be new to healthcare and others may have heard of this before, but it never hurts to refresh this. 
The covered entities are healthcare providers, health plans, and healthcare claims clearinghouses. Those entities create, receive, maintain, or transmit electronic protected health information with a business associate. And a separate contract called a business associate agreement or similar contract is required between a covered entity and a business associate. A subcontractor is in fact a type of business associate under the HIPAA CFR definition, but when a business associate is in privity of contract with its own third party, so the subcontractor has an indirect relationship with the covered entity and not a direct relationship, you have to make sure that that BAA is in place and that every entity in the link of trust, you can think of the covered entity, business associate, and subcontractor relationship as being linear. They all need to be giving those reasonable assurances, know what to do in the event of a breach, and then having a game plan when the relationship ends. And the relationship might end for not a bad reason. A company might be sold to another company, or it could be a limited engagement, just things like that. So then you have to also consider state laws. And Texas House Bill 300 is also known as Texas HIPAA. And for example, there's a different definition here in Texas. And that covered entity definition, we don't have business associates per se, but the definition of a covered entity not only includes the federal definitions, but it is any person who creates, receives, maintains, or transmits protected health information. So again, that net or umbrella is actually larger than federal HIPAA. And then the Federal Trade Commission also has a breach notification rule, which was promulgated in 2009, February of 2009. And I look at it as filling a gap between the federal HIPAA definitions because it gives a the Federal Trade Commission the ability to enforce HIPAA as well under the Federal Trade Commission Act, specifically Title V, because of the impact on the consumers and consumers' rights. And in fact, they have had various enforcement actions, even going back to 2009 with CVS and then Rite Aid and then Henry Sheen Dental as well more recently. So that's just something to be aware of. I always like to put up the legislative history. So here we have 1996, HIPAA passed, the final privacy rule was published in the Federal Register on August 14th of 2002. And one key difference between the privacy rule and then the subsequent security rule is that the privacy rule pertains to all forms of protected health information. So verbal, old school patient charts. There was recently, in fact, an enforcement action where a lab disposed of the specimen cups with the individual's 
stamp and information on them. And that was considered a HIPAA violation. Again, not electronic. That was old school dumpster, which again, a form of social engineering is dumpster diving. So that's just something to be conscious of as well. The security rule only applies to electronic protected health information. Now, the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health Act became effective and passed on February 17th of 2009 as part of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. From there, we get the breach notification rule and then some proposed regulations for privacy and security. And then actually on January 25th of 2013, the privacy rule um, in security rules, final omnibus rule was published. And it also included in the omnibus rules an emphasis on the Genetic Information Non-Disclosure Act as well. And that site is 78 Federal Register 5566. Also of note is in 2015, the Cybersecurity Act of 2015 passed, and there were some great resources that came out of that. And I would encourage everyone to go to the HHS website and look for section 405D as in dog. There is a plethora of resources which came about as a result of a committee, so to speak, that was formed with public and private actors. Initially, the focus was on small businesses, but the tools and the templates are great for any size organization. And then in 2016, the 21st Century Cures Act was signed into law. And then in May, May 6th specifically of 2020, there were two final rules which were published in the Federal Register. One was published by CMS, the other one was published by ONC. ONC in particular uh, is important because it relates to information blocking, which also has ties into the privacy rule and the obligation that organizations have to provide patients with their medical record. Notably, the term EHI, electronic health information, emerged, and EHI includes electronic protected health information, plus the bonus of the definition of designated record set, which have been in the HIPAA CFR for a very long time. So this is an important uh, law now to note, and it's easier for me to refer to it as HR 7898. It actually was signed into law on January 5th of 2021. And basically it amended the High Tech Act by adding section 13412. And what's important about this is that the secretary shall consider whether the covered entity or business associate has adequately demonstrated that it had for not less than the previous 12 months recognized security practices because this may, may mitigate fines, result in early audit termination, et cetera. Every time I have represented a person who has received what I call a love letter or had a and or had a ransomware attack occur that they had to report HHS OCR goes back beyond 12 months. So they really do a deep dive and their process is very comprehensive. So 
that's another part of my practice. So I get to see the facets of the compliance side because I do the audits. I see how the government approaches looking at a potential violation. And then because I do the False Claims Act cases, which I'll delve into a little bit later, I also see that component as well. So as you know, before I mentioned NIST and those safeguards through their publications, as well as 405D, and then the HIPAA security rule components. All of those are helpful in terms of risk mitigation. I wouldn't go so far to say it's a safe harbor because a safe harbor has a specific term, for example, under the anti-kickback statute, but it absolutely is a mitigating factor and one that every organization, regardless of your role, should take advantage of. So basically, the key takeaway for the security rule, which then transcends into information blocking, is that appropriate technical, administrative, and physical safeguards need to be in place in order to ensure the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of the data so that the security of the electronic protected health information is intact. So just a couple of safeguards, just to put this on the forefront of your mind, an administrative safeguard, fundamental one is training. A technical safeguard would be a unique user ID and passcode. And then a physical safeguard would be having an ID badge that you swipe in and out of an office, for example, so that an audit log can be kept of who has been in and out and potentially seen protected health information. So what about HIPAA's criminal side as we get into the meat of the presentation today. So first and foremost, does HIPAA have a criminal side? It absolutely does. And the U.S. Department of Justice, in fact, has jurisdiction not only nationally but internationally to enforce criminal HIPAA penalties for violations of HIPAA pursuant to 42 U.S.C. 1320 D-6. And I will say right off the bat that if your client or if your organization is the recipient of a grand jury subpoena or another form of an international discovery request, you absolutely need to hire knowledgeable criminal counsel right away who has international experience because there are different extradition considerations, different treaties, which may be in place between companies. So hopefully you're never in that situation, but if your organization finds itself in that situation, I'm happy to uh, give a few names of attorneys that I would bring in to these types of matters. So criminal liability may attach in the following types of scenarios, and these are really the main ones. First, use or cause to be used a unique health identifier. If you think about ransomware attacks, what are they doing? They're taking the unique health identifiers and using it for financial gain. Anything that's used for personal gain, financial gain, remuneration is just not good. And that is when you start seeing the indictments and the trials and the sentencing. Obtain individually identifiable health information. 
as you know, in the noteworthy news section, I mentioned that data tracking, and especially in light of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, some states have enacted laws which may or may not be constitutional. And it's important to read the Dobbs opinion, not only Kavanaugh's concurring opinion, but also the dissent, because Kavanaugh, in his concurring opinion, actually mentioned specifically that the uh, reach of Dobbs did not impede into the Commerce Clause. So anytime you go between states, you're now under federal law and there's a commerce issue as well. So that can go criminal under the Travel Act or another variety of criminal statute. So again, if you find yourself in that predicament, I'm happy to give names of reputable attorneys that I would bring in to assist me if I ran into that situation. Then disclose protected health information to another person in each case in a manner that violates the HIPAA requirements. And I have some specific examples of that coming down the pike. Other laws such as the Stored Communications Act may also be used as a basis of criminal enforcement. So that's something to bear in mind as well. I mentioned uh, different DOJ memorandums, but here, one of the key items to know is that it, for those of you who watch crime movies or crime shows, oftentimes when someone's in court, they ask about the mental state or the scienter. It's also sometimes called the knowing standard. So the knowing standard used in the statute requires only that the person have knowledge of the facts that constitute the offense. This means that knowledge that the act is a violation of HIPAA is not required. So that's critical to know, and that actually is similar to some other laws as well. So criminal penalties can be pretty stiff. They can include a fine of not more than 50K, imprisonment of not more than one year or both for knowing violations, a fine not to exceed 100,000 imprisonment of not more than five years or both if the offense is committed under false pretenses and or a fine up to 250K imprisonment of up to 10 years or both if the offense is with an intent to sell, transfer or use individually identifiable health information for commercial advantage, personal gain, or malicious harm. So that right there is significant. Something to look at is the federal sentencing guidelines. Those are required to be considered by the court, although not necessarily applied, but they absolutely need to be considered. And sometimes what you'll see, and I'm not a criminal lawyer, but I read enough criminal cases and sentencing memoranda to appreciate that oftentimes you can have for more than one violation the compounding, so to speak, of the different penalties. So again, it's imperative to get a really good criminal health care lawyer with experience in dealing with this. Where an infraction results in a criminal penalty, the covered entity or business associate 
is not subject to an additional civil monetary penalty or liability for damages under the state's attorney general enforcement. This one's actually interesting depending on how it comes about because as you will see with a False Claims Act case out of the District of Massachusetts and a major pharmaceutical company, there is a way to have the HIPAA component, but also have the other types of violations and false claims as well. So conduct that can lead to criminal penalties, these are pretty fundamental. First, you don't want to view PHI without authorization or being on the care team or billing team handling a particular patient. That's first. Second of all, PHI accessing it and using it for financial gain. That is never a good situation there. Perpetrating a ransomware attack and stealing the protected health information, again, either using it for malicious harm, such as posting it to the web, or uh, using it against a hospital where it could shut things down and it leads to a patient death, or again, selling it on the black market. And lastly, providing pharmaceutical or medical device reps with access to patient records in exchange for remuneration. This may also lead to a False Claims Act violation. And I wanna give a recent example. I mentioned the Warner Chilcott case. That's been a few years now, but on October 7th, 2022, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of New Jersey actually announced that a doctor admitted to a criminal HIPAA scheme for wrongful disclosure of protected health information to pharmaceutical sales representatives. And the key takeaways here are that between 2014 and 2016, a sales representative for a pharmaceutical company who promoted compound prescription medications and other medications, which are typically mixed by another one who was not associated with the medical practice was and should not have been able to access and obtain the individually identifiable information. As part of the scheme, the doctor permitted this rep to have significant access to his office, medical files, and patient information. He also allowed the pharmaceutical rep to be present in the office, both during and outside normal business hours, and to have access to areas of the office restricted to staff, including areas with patient files and office computers. Now, Alario permitted, that was a doctor, the pharmaceutical rep to look up patients' information in files and on office computers to determine if patients had insurance that covered the compound medications. From there, he would give the doctor a list or take it to the doctor so the doctor would know who the prescription may be utilized for. So then the pharmaceutical rep would use the patient's confidential information to fill out prescription forms that the doctor would authorize and then Ritson received, Ritson is the sales rep, commissions on those prescriptions. 
That last part is very similar to the Warner Chilcott case. But again, this is something that is becoming more and more prevalent because of the patient safety issue and because when you start giving access in exchange for remuneration, that falls under the HIPAA criminal umbrella potentially. So in 1986, the Stored Communications Act was enacted, and it has a purpose that's really analogous to HIPAA, and that is to protect the privacy and unauthorized disclosure of stored electronic protected or electronic communications. The difference is that the SCA extends to all stored electronic communications and not just PHI, EPHI, or EHI. And as the DOJ has explained, electronic storage is defined in this particular part of the United States code as being both temporary, immediate of a wire or electronic communication incidental to the electronic transmission and the storage. So like HIPAA, which extends beyond external hackers, so does the Stored Communications Act. So again, you need to be as aware of what's going on internally at an organization as you are as to what's going on externally. Now, here is a case where a district court, United States District Court for the state of New Jersey, held that non-public Facebook posts, which are configured to be private, are indeed covered under the Stored Communications Act because one, they're electronic communications, two, they are transmitted via an electronic communication service in electronic storage and not accessible to the general public. So more of the criminal side of HIPAA. Well, the first known criminal enforcement action actually goes back to the DOJ's press release on January 8th of 2010. And here a UCL, a physician researcher actually was looking at medical records of celebrities and his colleagues without any legal or medical reason. And here the DOJ said HIPAA's criminal privacy provisions protect not only celebrities, but all of us from curious neighbors, disgruntled coworkers, and other supporters. So here Zhao pled guilty to four counts of illegally accessing and viewing patient records. I mentioned that 2013 omnibus rule in the sale of protected health information. This is critical. A sale of PHI occurs when there is a direct or indirect remuneration, including in-kind remuneration. By way of contrast, the definition of remuneration for marketing purposes does not include non-financial or in-kind. For those of you who are healthcare lawyers or have been involved in healthcare for a while, this sale of PHI's definition may look similar to the anti-kickback statute's remuneration, and that is just related to referrals, but again, it's the payment for referrals and that can be an indirect or direct remuneration, either in cash or in kind. So I have slides related to approximately seven different more recent criminal enforcement actions. So I'll hit the highlights of these for you. This actually 
occurred in the Western District of Tennessee, and the DOJ had its press release on November 10th of 2022. Here, a grand jury indicted five former hospital employees for conspiring with an individual to unlawfully disclose patient information in violation of HIPAA. Secondly, according to the indictment, this transpired over a period of just over three years, and the individual paid the five employees to provide him with names and phone numbers of the patients who had been involved in motor vehicle accidents. For then, he sold that information to third persons, including personal injury lawyers and chiropractors. So the key takeaways here are, A, the employees went in and viewed information that they shouldn't typically have viewed. Secondly, the remuneration by the individual to the hospital employees, and then he selling it for personal gain to the other actors as well. So this is a typical type of scenario where people can, in fact, pace, um, face criminal actions. One issue with all of the remote working is this is very hard to monitor when you have a cell phone. And it's because how do you know that someone doesn't have a camera or another phone set up that isn't seen by the screen itself. And so they could have that set up, have the recording of the EHR or billing software or whatever it is, get all of that information in the software which the entity may have installed might not have the ability to track that. So again, that's just something that absolutely has to be front and center in your training manuals and your policies and procedures and reinforce because if there is a scheme, you need to be able to protect yourself as an organization to say, we did everything in our power that we can do. I'm not a fan of remote working necessarily for a lot of different types of reasons even though most people are, I would say, above board, but it's the ones that may not be that are potentially very costly to an organization. So as the organization, you need to be able to establish to the government that you did everything possible and that you made it clear that if you use PHI for any purpose or the individually identifiable information for these types of purposes, that criminal uh, that may constitute criminal conduct. They may be subject to enforcement actions and that you, the organization, will cooperate with whatever government agency is involved in that. So the Southern District of Iowa, again, this came out in June of 2022. This was a sentencing and here, this individual wrongfully obtained and disclosed individually identifiable information. And according to the documents, this person conspired with a then employee of the Veterans Affairs Medical Center to obtain that information and then, in fact, uh, disclosed records to a third party. The key takeaway is the red part. The conduct involved the intent to transfer and use the health information for personal gain 
or and malicious harm. So it was a felony under federal law. District of Massachusetts, again, we see a marketer pleading guilty to one count of violating HIPAA for a commercial gain. A three-year term of probation was issued for his role in a multi-million dollar Medicare fraud scheme. Again, you're starting to see that interplay between the False Claims Act, anti-kickback potentially, and these types of prohibitive HIPAA violations. Another area to look at this actually was a press release which was announced on December 3rd of 2021. And here the perpetrator was a medical biller at a company that furnished credentialing and medical billing services to covered entities where he had access to the company's financial, medical provider, and patient information. Here it was found that the perpetrator abused his role as a medical biller by wrongfully accessing and utilizing the company's patient information and the physician name and ID number. He then used it to commit downstream fraud of submitting false and fraudulent claims. Here, EDTX criminal action taking and selling a PHI. We have Cerventes, Amanda Lowry. Uh, these individuals, again, co-conspired and they breached a healthcare provider's electronic health record system in order to steal PHI and then repackage it in order to commit downstream fraud in the form of false and fraudulent claim submissions. These individuals obtained more than 1.4 million in proceeds from the sale of stolen protected health individuals. And a criminal lawyer colleague of mine who's a former criminal AUSA indicated that 48 months was a pretty juicy sentence. And when you go back to the previous slide, that makes sense given that 10 year period. Here, Gwinnett Medical Center, this is a great example of two things. The person was an inside attacker. It wasn't due to an external attack. And what happened was that it involved disrupting phone service, obtaining information from a digitizing device, and disrupting network printer services. The indictment further alleged that the attack was conducted in part for financial gain. Again, make sure that you train your staff and you have adequate monitoring on people as well as potentially forwarding of emails or printing of certain documents. Again, it's harder if the person's working remotely just for the reasons that I indicated before. This one is has everything to it. It's like the Bassomatic commercial. Uh, so not only was there an insider who took different types of information from a hospital, this was considered aggravated identity theft and the unauthorized disclosure of protected health information. This particular group of criminals and co-conspirators submitted to a pandemic relief program. And then whenever they were uh, raided, so to speak, they also found that there was a additional conspiracy to uh, possess different types of illegal drugs and the intent to distribute. So 
uh, that one's an interesting one. Now, the False Claims Act in HIPAA, the False Claims Act actually goes back to 1863, so it's been around for quite some time, and it may take many forms. This is just a highlight of it here. Recent FCA data, and for fiscal year 2021, there were 5.6 billion in total FCA settlements, and over 5 billion, or approximately 89% of the fiscal year 2021 recoveries came from the healthcare industry, mostly from Medicare fraud. Non-healthcare procurement fraud matters still brought in about 500 million in recoveries, up about 100 million from the last year. So a couple of trends I already mentioned earlier, but just to bring this home in terms of cyber, for fraud, waste, and abuse, cybersecurity remains the single most pressing issue facing healthcare organizations. You want to look at the CISA and some other items as well. Now, the comprehensive health services case in the interest of full disclosure, there were actually two cases that were combined, one that was filed in the Middle District of Florida and myself and two other attorneys were fortunate to represent the whistleblower in that matter. And it was our case actually that became the first cyber, civil cyber fraud initiative settlement. So the 930,000 FCA settlement really was based upon false representation of compliance in relation to providing medical services, as well as not consistently having stored patient medical records on a secure EHR system in accordance with HIPAA, as well as the individual types of requirements under the federal acquisition regulations for that particular contract. Electronic health records are going to continue to be an area of interest for the government. And as of the date of this particular announcement, federal investment of more than $35 billion in what I call the program formerly known as Meaningful Use, but Meaningful Use or the incentive payments over the last decade. Warner Cholcott, I mentioned, and this was important because as you can see here, the company paid $125 million to resolve both criminal and civil liability. And there were also investigations into not only the company, but as you'll see here, the Plead, plead the guilty plea to wrongful disclosure of individually identifiable health information, which is a criminal violation under HIPAA, which is similar to that New Jersey matter that I mentioned earlier. Another part of this is that a physician was actually sentenced to one year of probation for obstruction of a criminal health care investigation. Uh, if there is one takeaway, don't lie to the federal government or any any government official, uh, especially when an investigation is being conducted. And there is liability under 18 U.S.C. 1001 for that. So risk mitigation tips and techniques. Previously, I mentioned that there are various manual considerations by the DOJ. So for commercial litigation, you wanna make sure if you're on the defense side 
that you're referencing DOJ manual section 4-4.112, which was last revised in 2019 and identifies factors that will be considered and the credit will be provided by the DOJ attorneys when entities or individuals voluntarily self-disclose misconduct that could serve as the basis for False Claims Act liability and or administrative remedy. So you also want to do your best to cooperate as well. Now on the criminal side, on September 15th of 2022, a memorandum was issued by Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco entitled Further Revisions to Corporate Criminal Enforcement Policies following discussions with Corporate Crime Advisory Group. And here it gave insights into what the DOJ will consider in relation to corporate criminal enforcement, as well as mitigating factors, self-disclosure, individual facts and circumstances, going back to that HR 7898, if you had certain safeguards in place and attempted to legitimately and comprehensively meet the technical, administrative, and physical safeguards of the security standards with NIST, 405D, and the HIPAA security rule. Those are all factors that would come into play. So you want to always think about why fraudsters find this data so attractive. A, it has the ability to harm people. B, it has a high market value and can be monetized. What if a pharmaceutical company pays kickbacks? Well, we've seen a couple of examples, both the physician and pharma rep from the compounding company, as well as Warner Chilcott. And how can persons mitigate risk against cybersecurity and fraud, waste, and abuse liability? training, adequate policies and procedures, making sure that you have adequate oversight, doing an annual risk assessment and risk analysis, both on the biller coding side and on the HIPAA side, and ensuring that you have those adequate technical, administrative, and physical safeguards in place. Again, making sure that you're keeping up with ransomware, which is basically the illegal taking of illegal access and taking of data and then holding it hostage in exchange for some form of payment. That's what ransomware is. These types of bulletins, which are up on the screen, are imperative to stay on top of. I mentioned CISA earlier and the best practices, maintaining offline backups, maintaining regularly updated gold images of critical systems in the event they need to be rebuilt, and maintaining a comprehensive incident response plan are all vital. So HIPAA violations can carry criminal penalties. Cyber is a team effort and an enterprise risk management strategy is one of the best and most comprehensive ways to approach risk. Cyber criminals are becoming increasingly more sophisticated and the DOJ's focus on cybersecurity, which its civil cyber fraud initiative was announced on October 6th of 2021, which led to the case where myself and my two colleagues were fortunate to represent the whistleblower, all came into play. So with that, Catherine, I'll 
transition the floor back to you for any questions that we may have. Excellent. Thank you so much, Rachel. We do have, we'll take one question right now and then we'll do the rest of our questions offline. So we'll send them on to Rachel or you can contact her directly. What are some significant concerns related to data tracking and not obtaining patient consent? And you discussed that some, but I don't know if you could delve into that just a little bit more for this question. Sure. I, th I think there are three main considerations, Catherine. As we know, in the repealing of Roe, there has been more and more emphasis on different state laws and tracking whether or not people go across state lines to obtain certain types of health care. And that is a major issue and a major consideration. So when organizations are approaching that particular sensitive information, you need to look at what HIPAA requires. You need to make sure that you know how companies that you are in a contract with are utilizing that data. And even when I do my own risk analyses, we go in to the various applications to see, okay, how is this software being used? Is patient data being collected in any way, shape, or form? Are the patients aware of it and have they provided consent? Moreover, have the patients been given the opportunity to opt out of that? And again, going back to some of the other presentations that we've collaborated on, I think there's a wealth of information on those, as well as the article that I mentioned by Marianne McGee that I'm happy to provide to you to provide to the audience. Okay, wonderful. We could definitely use that, so thank you. I appreciate that. I think that we're going to go ahead and wrap up our webinar, but did you have any other thoughts or big picture type of ideas that you wanted to leave with us before we end? The three main takeaways I would say are first, cybersecurity and HIPAA are becoming more of a focus, not only on the cyber criminal side, but also by government agencies, because as I mentioned, cybersecurity is patient safety. That's the first item. The second item is that there are tools out there to make sure that your organization, regardless of what your size is, is complying with the technical, administrative, and physical safeguards. And lastly, the best way to figure out where your gaps are or where you need to be thinking as an organization is to pay the money and have an experienced person do a third-party risk assessment on your organization. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. Um, we're going to use the contact information on the screen for any questions. Again, if you all have any questions or concerns, or Rachel also has a wealth of information uh, if you have concerns about this directly at your facility, and she can get you directed into the right person to talk with as well. Please use the contact information for any questions. So I wanted to thank you again, Rachel, so much for being here. Did you have any anything else that you wanted to add? 
No, only to thank you, Catherine, for having me as a guest. As you know, I always enjoy collaborating with you and being a resource for first healthcare compliance and your clients. Thank you. Thank you. We always love having you here. You're always such an expert presenter. Attendees, again, if you please remember your PACOM and your PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. You can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. So I wanted to thank you again, Rachel, and thank our attendees for being here, and thanks for joining us.